I'm Steve Lascalso, and this is The Way. Welcome to This is the Way Podcast's reaction and discussion episode for Chapter 24 of The Mandalorian. Season 3, Episode 8, The Return. It's the Season 3 finale. All the speculation and theory crafting last week was the most fun I've had in, well... Long time. A long time. Actually, when you think about it, the episode aired on April 19th. So that was more than a week ago. The thumbnail description and full episode description are the same on Disney+. They read, The Mandalorian and his allies confront their enemies. Okay, then. The runtime for Episode 8, Chapter 24, shows up as 42 minutes in parentheses on the Disney Plus show page. That's the third shortest. If you press play, you get to the credits 35 and one half minutes later, skip the previously on and opening sequences, and you can get through the episode in about 33 and a third minutes. This is the way. This is the part where I ask, you know, do we learn anything from the concept art? Because for a long time, I just thought it was interesting seeing from concept to final implementation what changes might have been made. And that's one of the things I'm starting to see pop up on Star Wars Twitter that we've been doing for a long time, like talking about run times, talking about the cast, talking about the crew, uh, just little things that we have done for, well, maybe since the beginning of our podcasting, that other podcasts are starting to follow or starting to do their, on their own now, and they're passing it off like, hey, this is a great idea that we came up with. But we've been doing it for so long, and it's disheartening sometimes to see other podcasts, I, now I, I'm not saying that they're copying us directly, but maybe they are seeing the things that we're doing and like some of the things that we're doing that are working. And I do know that some of those podcasts do that because sometimes you put little errors in there to see what will come through on someone else's Twitter, uh, an error or a thing that you put in that no one else could possibly know, but then you hear it and you know, oh, they got that from us. It's a little bit upsetting sometimes. Disheartening was the word I used. Let's get to the concept art and not really worry about our Twitter followers too much. Very well. The opening of one of the jetpack fights through the tunnels was much cooler in the concept art than the actual fight. But if you shot those scenes the way they were, you know, conceptualized, (laughs) it probably would have taken a lot of time, effort, and money. So what we got was fine. It just wasn't as cool as jetpacking through the tunnels. I don't think any of the ships of the fleet were destroyed in orbit, uh, except for the disabling of the flagship before it crashed. But, you know, what became of those TIE interceptors and bombers? We never saw what happened to them after the fight in orbit. But the concept art shows us that one of the ally ships was destroyed. And I, you know, we didn't see that. Maybe there was some different plan, especially since I think there was a Lego set that had a fight between a Fang fighter and a TIE interceptor, but that never happened. So maybe at one point there was a planned space battle. Now, those TIE interceptors would probably have had to re-enter the atmosphere, go through the cloud cover, and then radio the base to discover what's happening. They never did that, at least not that we saw on screen. 
I don't imagine the other fighter ships in the Mandalorian fleet were left completely unmanned. But what do you do? Do you just let the foundlings man the guns or something? Like, how do you... You can't just all drop out of the ship, right? Anyway, moving on. The green cloning tubes in the concept art, much cooler than what we saw in the episode. And again, I mean, a little bit of lighting could have gone a long way, I think. But maybe that's not what they were going for. Mando doesn't blast the control panel either. He starts a self-destruct sequence chain reaction by pressing buttons. We get a look at what I guess is the bomber ammunition, the TIE bomber ammunition or charges. They're in one of the images, those yellow capsule-like things. Then we get a look inside a TIE cockpit, and it showed us a white painted Beskar trooper pilot suit, as well as a look at the inside of the TIE interceptor cockpit, which reminds me of the game Star Wars Squadrons, if you've ever played that. Then there's a shot of what I thought looked like Axe heading to the command ship while another show is blown to bits. That must have been an alternate concept. And again, maybe that's what it is. Maybe he gets to orbit, warns some of them to go through, you know, the atmosphere and fight. Uh, But I guess they decided that that would leave too many questions, which it probably would have. The lush caves, the cultivated caves, looked bigger in the art, just as vibrant. I definitely question, though, how how much information do these concept artists get? Like, we see the image of Bo-Katan with the Darksaber and the armor with what looks like a heavy blaster instead of her hammer and tongs. So are they just told, like, show them going in to the fight? Or do they reason with them and say, look... The armor's going to have her, you know, hammer and tongs there. So make sure she gets one of those because clearly the armor has this blaster thing. The shot of the relit Great Forge and the Mandalorians milling about made it seem like in the art that there are less than they were at this ceremony. I still don't know how many Mandalorians there are supposed to be. But if you're going to start a restart a civilization, you need more. <laughs> The Adelphi Rager Station Bar once again had a human serving up drinks instead of the Snivian. And I don't know what Captain Teva is doing, but I don't think he's anywhere to be found in the concept art. So maybe that was a late change. The final shot is another favorite of mine from the season. Amanda with his feet up on the porch while the kid plays near the front pond. And that's 13 images taking 1 minute and 45 seconds Those concept art, you know, I really missed it in Obi-Wan Kenobi. They did it for the Book of Boba Fett, and they've done it since season one for The Mandalorian. I really think those are some of the, the, the smallest but best additions to this series that we've seen in Star Wars. I hope they do it for Zoka. I hope they do it for Skeleton Crew. I don't know that they're going to. But I hope so. I'm glad I gave you something to look forward to. The credits start with the director. Once again, it's Rick Famuyiwa. He's fine. Solid work. It's not everything everyone wanted, but it's not a lot of what people don't want. I mean, he didn't write this one. Or maybe they do. Maybe Favreau insulates Famuyiwa by claiming writing ownership. I don't think so. But maybe he does. Maybe a showrunner... He has final say on a lot of plot points, 
and then you do whatever you want. And if it's good, I claim I I don't know how that works, but I just know that he's not credited that way. Why do I bring that up? Well, Famuyiwa wrote an episode in each of the first two seasons, season three, none. He directed his own scripts both times, plus an episode that Favreau was credited writing, Chapter 2's The Child. Who wrote this one? Writing credit for this episode belongs solely to John Favreau. He claims partial credit on three of the eight episodes, and the other five, including the first and last episodes, he's sole credit. Director of photography, once again, David Klein. I'll mention Andrew L. Jones and Doug Chang again for their production design, since this is the finale, and we're not going to have another chance. This one was edited by Jeff Siebenick and Rachel Goodlett Katz. The theme was by Ludwig Gornson and scored by Joseph Shirley. But I noticed we were back to the normal version over the credits instead of the slow one after Chapter 16 and last episode, Chapter 23. Chapter 16 ended with the separation of Din Djarin and Grogu because of Luke. A voluntary, but it's still separation. Chapter 23 was the capture of Din Djarin and the death of Paz Vizsla and the failing hope of the tribes of Mandalore. Chapter 24 has a much more upbeat ending, so the happier version makes more sense. Let's move from crew to the cast. Nobody here gives their real name. Only Pedro Pascal as the voice of the Mandalorian and Katie Sackhoff as Bo-Katan Kryze are starring roles. I guess... That's contractual, but Pascal wasn't in the suit at all times this season. In fact, was he in suit at all? It's the first season that we don't see his face at all. Latif Crowder and Brendan Wayne are the ones dressed for action. And as I've mentioned many times, they earn co-starring status. Speaking of co-starring, Simon Cassianides, a former Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, alumni is Axe Woves, and though I didn't think he was a traitor, I definitely suggested he was more likely than others. Well, at least the ones that were being offered up as fan theories. So... Apologies. Mercedes Vernado, a.k.a. the WWE's Sasha Banks, plays Cosca and Axe says Koska, not Koska as I've been saying it, so I will try to do better, but, you know, old habits are hard to break. Giancarlo Esposito is back as Moff Gideon, the likeness of his clones as well. And it's probably his last time in the role, but never say never. Emily Swallow is the armor. We never got a name, just the armor. Din is the Mandalorian, and she is the armor. Paul Sunhyung Lee is back as our favorite New Republic pilot, Captain Carson Teva. Just one more thing. And Carl Weathers is Grief Karga. Hi, Magistrate. Grief Karga. That's your stars and co-stars. Now let's talk about guest starring roles for the episode in order of appearance. Taika Waititi earned the credit for the voice of IG-12 and, once again, IG-11. Travis Parker earns the credit as the Mandalorian that was in charge of the Fleet Command. The one, you know, Axe Woves ushers everyone out into the surface. Travis Parker played that fleet commander. The survivor scout is Charles Baker. And we pointed out last week, he's basically steering the skiff right into the monster in the last episode. But I guess they're, try they're chalking that up to panic driving because he is not a traitor. 
Baker was also Skinny Pete in Breaking Bad. Credited as Survivor Captain was Charles Parnell. He was, well, he probably is most famous for being the Admiral in Top Gun Maverick, but he played an Admiral in Top Gun Maverick and a Captain here. That's kind of weird. I think you misunderstand, Captain. His call sign was Warlock. I don't know if you remember that. Ragnar got to finish his baptism in the in the finale, something he started in the opening of season three. And Wesley Kimmel was the one who got to play Ragnar, orphan of Paz Vizsla. The Snivian bartender at the Adelphi Rangers post was once again Misty Rosas. There's a lot of performance artists that we're not going to mention. Parvis China voiced Grief Cargus Copper-plated Protocol Droid. And Shirley Henderson voices the Enzelans once again. Bad baby. Oh, was crazy! Was there a Disney snap in the morning of the streaming release on Disney Plus? Well, it didn't start when I was watching. Then, when I brought up Disney Plus in a browser window later, it was there. So I think this Disney snap or no Disney snap is an inconsistency of the user interface. You know, if you're using an app or a browser or TV. Whatever you're watching on might determine whether or not you get the Disney Splash. In fact, I've gone back to watch and collect audio several times, and sometimes it shows up, sometimes it doesn't, and it doesn't appear on the time code. So I think it was once expected to be uploaded as part of the episode package, and then they finally figured out how to make it part of the interstitial automatically. But I'm, you know, I don't know programming or whatever. Anyway, the previously on segment reminds us of last episode's hollow meeting of the Shadow Council. There's Brendel Hux accusing Gideon of using Pershing for his own ends. You know, I don't think Hux just makes that accusation out loud without something stronger than a hunch. And that would be part of self-preservation in this community, not a rule. We hear Gideon claim cloning isn't his obsession over the proof from Chapter 12's The Siege that it is his obsession. Elia Kane continues our reminders from Chapter 23 with her back alley meeting with the probe droid. Gideon's disbelief that the Mandalorians could be working together. We see again from Chapter 23 Mandalorians uniting under Bo-Katan during the Feast on Navarro. So far, the only scenes we're reminded of that didn't come from the last episode was that Chapter 12, The Siege, Navarro base of Gideon's that contained those failed clones. Everything else is from last episode. We see the fleet leave Navarro as we're reminded of the survivors surviving, and we they recognize Bo-Katan's voice. We see them come upon the Great Forge and the Beskar Trooper, initial attack. They, we see Axe leave to warn the fleet. The springing of the trap and Gideon's arrival and helmet removal. We're also reminded that it's a Beskar iteration of Dark Trooper armor. And that Gideon's goal is the final purge of Mandalore. Finally, we see Paz Vizsla fall in battle against the Praetorian Guard before the Lucasfilm Limited and Star Wars slate appear. Almost every shot coming from the previously previous episode. Just that one or two seconds... From season two, and that, that was it. Yeah, 
they could have just saved time and said, watch chapter 23 first. <laughs> the first shots of chapter 24 of, are of Bo-Katan leading the escape after heading through those blast doors. Uh, at least the hole that she cut last episode. Then she contacts Axe Woves. This is setting up a moment of truth. Is Axe loyal? Bo tells him, Gideon's alive. Mandalore is now home to one of his bases. The last update she gives is the most important. Probably the only thing he needed. Maybe if there was no previously on segment, you put that line in, but we, the audience, didn't need that information, and neither does Axe. You only need it if you didn't watch the previously on or any of the episodes from the season prior, and nothing's going to make sense if you don't watch any part of episodes 1 through 7 from this season. Also, I really was expecting him to suffer some damage and experience some danger heading through the clouds with just his armor and no ships or shields. I mean, it's an electrical storm he's going through and he's got metal armor. It's a good thing she had this conversation when she did, though, right? I mean, timing is everything in the universe, I suppose. But not only that, remember at the end of Chapter 23, we saw Gideon activate the TIE Fighters and Bombers? They didn't launch then, but they're getting ready to do so in this episode. So, okay. Axe gets a head start since he left during the initial attack, but he's not in a ship. He is jetpacking to orbit. So he has to make it to the fleet, get them to evacuate, and head down all before the enemy breaks through the cloud-covered upper atmosphere. And you can't do it too soon... Because then they'll see them coming through the clouds. We don't even continue with Axe here. Instead, we head back to Bo-Katan and her group in the tunnels. She sets a charge, and I'm guessing... Or somebody does. Uh, maybe it was Koskaris. I'm guessing that Famuyiwa didn't want to spend a lot of his budget collapsing a cave, so the pursuit through the tunnels is cut short by this explosive charge... And I feel like we'd expect any of our heroes to survive easily. But for some reason, the bad guys are just stopped by this small cave-in that we don't even get to see. No. 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 Then we cut to the Mandalorian trying to escape his guard and his son comes to the rescue. It's a short scene. He was being dragged through the tunnels. And now, you know, I would have preferred to see Grogu rescuing him from the start. I also don't get this back to spray thing because that was something Grogu didn't even see in Chapter 8. So that was more of an IG-11 thing. But at this point, IG-11 doesn't have any memory. I, it just didn't make much sense. You know, maybe I'm picking apart the episode a little bit too much. Grogu, I'm going to need you to be brave for me, okay? <laughs> we can't keep running. If we don't take out Moff Gideon, this will never end. with me so we hear from Din Djarin what they've got to do and then the title is revealed as the return and what return are we speaking of because we just heard Grogu we have to stop him but now I mean we hear the return well it's all of them Return to the planet. Return of the planet. Return of the fleet. 
Return of the Mandalorians, Return of the Fires to the Forge, Return to Tradition, lots of returns. Exactly. Din Djarin contacts Bo-Katan and she sounded unsurprised that he'd free himself. Well, free himself with Grogu's help. But he says, we're safe. I escaped. I've got the kid. Not really representative of what happened, but whatever. Bo-Katan says she's got the troops to safety, or she's got to get them to safety, rather. Din says, I'm going to go after Moff Gideon. Before she goes, she does tell him a little something extra. Do you have a location? No. We're under attack. I have to get the troops to safety. Understood. Stay safe. Everybody's got their own job to do, and I think it was a good idea to remind us his jetpack was removed when captured, so taking... The Beskar Troopers pack was a great way to solve that without dialogue. Speaking of jetpacks, the escapees use theirs to get through a hole to the surface. And the survivor captor says, hey, I know somewhere where we can go. It really is as if Favreau knew people would be speculating about who might be traitors. And then leaned heavily into leaving it as much of an unresolved issue until the last moment as possible. I mean, here we're thinking, is the captain going to lead him into a trap? Well, we have to wait, because we see the TIE interceptors dropping from the ceiling of the cave like bats. And the bombers are leaving. They're all heading toward the fleet in orbit. Moff Gideon is watching a hollow projected map with two moving dots. He knows Mando has escaped. A Beskar trooper comes in to update him, and when he hears that the prisoner escaped, he offers to help, but... It's really just dialogue to set up this rhyme of, you know, dialogue from Return of the Jedi. Instead of leave them to me, I will deal with them myself. Moff Gideon says, Shall we engage? No, I'll take care of him myself. So the choice of dialogue was really to set that up. The next scene is once again Din Djarin deciding to rely on a droid, one that a few episodes proved traitor to him in favor of the New Republic, or at the least was a former comrade in the Rebellion. But now he needs R5 to scomp into the base, which I guess means hacking a terminal. But in games and other material, it was called slicing. But we're calling it scomping, I guess. You know, R5 is not really a hero. I was kind of hoping he would perish in the attempt. Not, not that you know his failure would doom the others, but the the point of view books that reframe reframe that bad motivator as him intentionally doing that to move forward the R two D two arc for the Skywalkers. Now, if he did it, it wasn't to ensure the plans ended up in the right place. He, I don't think he could have possibly known about it. But it, even if he did, I, I, he was doing it to to save himself danger from danger. Not he's not a hero. <laughs> Even if the events that took place in that book are correct. He's not a hero. He downloads the schematics, sends them to Din Djarin, who pulls them up on his gauntlet. And, you know, I didn't see a, a You Are Here locator at all. So great, he knows where he's supposed to go, but if he doesn't know where he is, how's he going to get where he wants to go? <sighs> you know, again, nitpicky, doesn't matter, but it was so simple to just not do it this way. Got it. Good job, buddy. That's the command center. The communications log says that's where he operates from. That's where we're going. 
Ready? Stay close. Let's go. Oh, the communications log. When did we see him get access to that? They didn't even realize there was an Imperial presence until the first attack by Imperials near the Great Forge. Suddenly, Din has access to communications logs and knows that's where Gideon is, despite having been dragged off before seeing a resolution to the fighting or even hearing that Paz Vizsla died fighting. The scouting party has been ambushed by Imperial weapons. They're launching fighters to destroy the fleet. Proceed. How shall we proceed? Load the gauntlets and send all available troops down as reinforcements. Leave the capital ship behind as a decoy. Bo-Katan needs our help. If that's a weak point, we're starting to get stronger from there on out. We're back to Axewoves, heading up through the atmosphere. He radios the fleet immediately. Thankfully, the troops are on alert and they get moving immediately. I assume that the best medical care was on the capital ship, however, so are they quickly transferring all those patients to the gauntlets? I mean, it's a great plan, but if you were worried about Axe being a traitor, there's enough here still where you're waiting to see, is he going to sabotage things? And the person left in charge of the fleet, the fleet commander, also seemed to be worried about that a little bit. It's the look he gives as he leaves Axe to set up the capital ship as a decoy. So if Favreau planted the seeds of doubt during Star Wars Celebration, kudos to him. Maybe he told a few key people to think harder about who, you know, who, you know, did you notice that title, The Spies? Who do you think that might be? And then they ran with it? Because otherwise, it's just serendipitous writing that left enough of those what-ifs to simmer, not just in the week between episodes, but during this episode. It doesn't seem like he would warn them, but what do we know of his plans? Things are moving fast. How fast? Well, the scenes of the Mandalorians jetpacking into the dropships are awesome. But we see the last fighter dip into the atmosphere four seconds before TIE interceptors and bombers clear the atmosphere. The communications blackout and the cloud cover change everything. The Imperials don't know how many ships are there. They come out of the atmosphere, see one, destroy one. So maybe after they finish it, they orbit the planet and make sure there are no others. I mean, you can't scan the surface from orbit. You can't radio from those craft to the surface. Sometimes it's just four seconds that saves your bacon. There goes another one. Hold your fire. There's no life forms. It must have short-circuited. Axe settles in as the Imperial Remnant bombards the capital ship. It's an Imperial one, too, so there's that tactical advantage that they know how to focus fire on it. We're still not sure what Axe is going to do. He's manning guns or setting them to auto-fire, but it appears, it appears that he's sacrificing himself. That's not something a traitor would do. Meanwhile, Mando and Grogu are sneaking around until they come to the laser doors. The Beskar troopers are still there, precariously perched. Despite the uh, assault before, they're still just where they were when Moff Gideon was walking through after talking to Kane. So R5 is going to shut down the shields one by one. He's so nervous, but he is very precise and, you know, real on time for the first four, at least until... Uh, those mouse droids get to him, but there's no weapons for Din Djarin. He's been disarmed. This fight sequence is great. 
the progression through the shields is amazing, but somehow it's believable. I believe what I'm seeing according to the rules I've accepted for this universe. It is a terrific sequence, and I think the high point of the episode for me. Whoever designed it, kudos. You know, was it JJ Dashnaw? Great job. Open the shield! Open the shield! I mean, even that has some rhyming with the original trilogies of New Hope, doesn't it? R5 has trouble opening the last door because of those mouse droids I mentioned earlier. They're harassing him. He manages to open it. Din finishes off the remaining guards, and R5 jetpacks off to the surface, knocking a couple mouse droids off the edge of the cliff. Din, Jaren, and Grogu make their way to the next room, which we have seen before. It's the room that Ginning was walking through with the tanks of clones. It turns out they're not Snoke-alikes or Fett-alikes. These are copies of Gideon. One even opens its eyes. Django's clones on Kamino underwent rigorous training and rapid aging. These clones are of no threat. I mean, they may be Force-sensitive if Grogu's approach is what triggers the clone to open its eyes, but they're helpless. They have no training and they're adults. Uh, the, the, tr- the, cl- the clones on Kamino were taken out of stasis or out of the, the tubes when they were very young, and then they aged quickly outside. But these clones are not going to have any knowledge of the danger they may face. The clones on Kamino had to be trained. So we have to assume that, you know, Moff Gideon would have had to have trained them somehow, even if they learned quickly... Otherwise, they're helpless. Mando sets off the chain reaction, destroys the tubes, and we assume killing the clones. We'll be safe down here a while. We've taken refuge in these surface caves since the purge. The next scene checks us back in with the escaping Mandalorians. They jetpack to a quiet spot with planetary flora. Mandalorian Remnant says they've been cultivating naturally occurring plants that they've found sprouting around the surface. Now, the uppermost layer was sand turned to glass by the heat of the explosions. Apparently, there are plenty of crevasses opened during the intense bombing. Somehow, some dormant seeds sprouted and life has found a way in just 10 years or maybe less since the purge. It's so rare that many Mandalorians, in fact, most of them, have never even seen wild plants growing. That's how rare nature is to this warring culture. Hey, confirmation's coming from the reinforcements. Comms crackle to life. We hear the armor inform Bo-Katan, hey, they've arrived. Once they get through the upper atmospheric storms, of course. Lady Kreeve, your reinforcements have arrived. Let's take back our planet. The drop-in of the Mandalorian reinforcements was inspiring and exciting, similar to the way the surprise rescue in Chapter 3 was back in Season 1. I mean, we know their capabilities. But to see it, you know, the ships coming in, the jet-packed mercenaries dropping out of the ship, heading to attack, that was was cool. The Beskar troopers have the packs, but they're not trained on the stuff. It's like giving a bunch of lifelong Southerners hockey equipment. 
And then you tell them, train for eight years. But you don't give them a coach. You just say, here's the equipment. Go ahead and train up. And then they have a pickup game with a bunch of guys that grew up in Minnesota and Canada. And even though they've never played together as a team, who do you think is going to win that hockey game? Well, the Jetpacks and Beskar are part of the Mandalorian culture. It's not just a job or a military post. I mean, it's a sight to see them at their prime. It was especially cool seeing the armor and Bo-Katan flying side by side. One wielding Beskar tools, the other the Darksaber. It was a great action sequence. Especially the point of view shot from the Beskar trooper before he gets pummeled by the armor. And then finally we check back in with Din Djarin and Grogu slash IG-12. We know the room with the clones is right next to that hollow conference room. So while we've been elsewhere, this scene with Din and Grogu has to follow immediately after the clone tubes were broken. I was isolating the potential to wield the Force and incorporating it into an unstoppable army. And you smothered them before they could draw their first breath. So Gideon was trying to isolate the Force, and that line about M-Count from a past season, yeah, that's it. Scientists in this world know what makes people more likely to be Force-sensitive, as we call it. Were the clones able to use the Force right out of the gate? Well, we'll never know, because they're gone, apparently. Not yet able to survive on their own. Somehow, Gideon already knows this, He was close, but he wasn't there to stop it. I mean, it only happened a minute ago on the timeline, right? But he's right there, and now they fight. The Mandalorian and Gideon. He has super strength, Gideon, thanks to the suit he wears, but he's not above cheating. He calls in the Praetorian Guard, and though Din Djarin puts up a fight initially, the three of them eventually subdue him and almost kill him. No, no, no. Lucky for him, Grogu is still there. Is he going to use the Force? No. Not yet, at least. He doesn't attack. He doesn't even defend. He retreats into the conference room with the suspended track lighting above, and the guards make short work of this IG unit shell. Grogu's able to Force leap and hop along the lighting rig above, but not for long. Meanwhile, Koska Reeves takes out some Beskar troopers with... Some slick maneuvers sliding in, using knee rockets. And then the armorer bashes more of them with her hammer. Bo-Katan arrives just in the nick of time to let Din Djarin save his child. And Gideon is going to fight her now. I've got this. Go save your kid. Bo-Katan Kreeze. What's it going to be this time? Surrender? Or fight? It's almost a reverse of the fight he had with Din Djarin on his light cruiser in Season 2. Bo-Katan's got the Darksaber this time instead of Gideon. And then Gideon has sort of a spear. Well, it's like an Electrostaff, just like Din Djarin had. It crackles with a purple energy, kind of like the guards' weapons. Speaking of the guards, Grogu's in trouble, trapped by the falling lightning ring as guards close around him. Din Djarin shoots one in the back, but in the armor. And then the three turn back their attention to him. Kind of pick back up where they were leaving off. Except now Grogu is using the Force to keep them from overwhelming 
his adopted dad. Bo-Katan is struggling either with the heaviness from the blade suddenly. I don't think that's what it is, though. I think she's just maybe tired. Moff Gideon doesn't appear to be slowing down. She does. Similarly, the guard, they already had their way with Din Djarin, but now Grogu is interrupting their tactics with uses of the Force. He knocks an attacker out of the way, keeps them away from a weapon, all of that at the last moment. And just that little extra is enough to help. You did good, kid. We return to Axe Wove's last captain of Gideon's light cruiser as it plummets to the Mandalore surface from space. It's moving fast. It's on fire. Now with the oxygen from the atmosphere, it's really on fire. It's a falling bomb. Axe is going to try to steer this bomb right into the base. He tries warning his friends, but hey, Bo is busy. Hand over the Darksaber, and I'll give you a warrior's death. Moments after he says that he wants it, he destroys it. The Darksaber is gone. You've lost everything. I don't even think if I can't have it, nobody can, applies here. If he could crush it, he could have just pried it from her hands with his mechanical gloves or whatever it is. He Then he plucks her helmet off and punishes her with the electroscath. I mean, he's so angry that he's going to crush the Darksaber, but not angry enough to just kill her right then and there. Mandalorians are weak once they lose their trinkets. Mandalorians are stronger together. His overconfidence is his undoing. Finally, stronger together. How many millennia have Mandalorians been waiting for a leader to realize this before it's too late? You know what it took? Love and understanding from Din Djarin. He appears from behind some crates and starts firing upon Gideon, so that's not the love, but that is the understanding. Now it's two-on-one good guys. Meanwhile, Axis. Keeping that light cruiser on target, but he's not going down with the ship. I know some people would have called it poetic for him to make a sacrifice, but as we see, it's totally and completely unnecessary. He takes a quick exit from the bridge with his jetpack. The bomb's still heading to the surface. It's still, I mean, I assume physics works in the same way. Most of the attackers are jetpacking away. They must have got the message, but a few do remain. There's this earth-shaking crash. I mean, it, the, sh- the ship making contact with the sides of the hole, it's not just clipping it. I mean, the, the whole planet on this side should be shaking. This is an earthquake. But if that's the case, there would be shaking the whole time. So I don't get why they, they did that. I mean, I think it's just cool. And then also, maybe we could have seen a shot of the Mythosaur underwater and the the water shaking under. I, I don't know. Something like that. Clearly, everyone on this side of the planet knows something going on. What about that giant beast? You know, the one that caused them to leave the surface for the caves in the last episode? It doesn't have to make sense, but I would like it to in my head. I would like to not ever have to think about these things. And the ship... You know, I just talked about physics working the same way. It's slowly falling through the base. Very slowly. It's time for Grogu to do a slide and force push Gideon and then his staff over the edge. Gideon's still standing up there. I and mean, he picks up a blaster. Before he can shoot Grogu, Din Djarin shoots the weapon from his hand, I think. 
He's sliding in. Then Mom Katan comes over and shields Grogu. Din Djarin and Bo-Katan can't do much. But they're doing whatever they can to protect this youngling. And the youngling, in turn, protects them all. A force bubble keeps them safe. Although, I gotta say, it's not just the flames that are hot. I mean, you ask a fireman firing, fighting a fire. You know, and Bo doesn't have her helmet on. You know, Grogu's not wearing one either. Still, they're safe, okay? And, and we enjoy that they're safe. And that's it. That's all for the episode. No, no. I'm kidding. Basically, what follows this explosion in the bubble is a season three epilogue. The armor presides over Ragnar Vizsla's oath ceremony. It's interesting that there's still an oath at all, considering all that happened, and then that there's this welcoming of the other tribes to get us to this point. And not only are they in attendance, they're observing this tradition of wearing the helmets. Still, it's a fitting bookend because that's how Ragnar was raised. It's a tradition, too, that we heard was observed by all Mandalorians, I mean, even Bo-Katan, even if only ceremonially. It's not unlike a wedding or a medal ceremony at the end of a movie to signify the unity. Grogu is my apprentice. He is no longer a foundling. Add him to the song. I guess if they would have had the medal ceremony music from John Williams, that would have been a little too much. But a couple of points I think are appropriate. I saw some people say that the armor was being too harsh with keeping the ceremony this way. She omitted a line about the helmet. But I think quite the opposite. I think she's almost walking everyone that's watching this down a certain path together. He is too young to speak, so he is too young to take the creed. He must remain a foundling. If his parent gave permission, couldn't he then become a Mandalorian apprentice? Yes, but his parents are far from here, if they are even alive. Then I will adopt him as my own. Like, no, you can't do it. He's too young. He can't speak. Well, what about his parents? Nope, sorry, they're not here. Well, what if I become his parent? Ah, now you get it, Din Djarin. Now you get it, Mandalorian. This is the way. This is the way. Let it be written in song that Din Djarin is accepting this foundling as his son. Unlike she did with Bo-Katan in private, she's letting it be known. Here's some new caveats to the foundling dilemma that we have. Ragnar took the oath himself. Grogu doesn't even need the oath. Or a helmet. What he needed was family. You are now Din Grogu, Mandalorian apprentice. This is the way. must leave Mandalore and take your apprentice on his journeys, just as your teacher did for you. This is the way. Ragnar 
observed the helmet roll and doesn't have his father anymore, but is becoming an apprentice to whom I don't know, but he's taking the oath. Meanwhile, we see Grogu doesn't have a helmet, can't speak the oath, doesn't even need to take the oath, and he gets promoted to apprentice. And what comes next was very unexpected, and, and let the speculations begin. You must leave Mandalore and take the apprentice on journeys, like yours did with you? Now our burning question is, who was Din Djarin's mentor? The armor? Plus, is Din the name you get as an apprentice? It's not Din Ragnar, right? Or Din Vizsla? Do you keep it forever? Because if it's not a first name, that brings up questions. It's not a huge deal, but you can't just do this, not explain it, and not expect to get criticism and legitimate criticism. If you're just doing it to be precious and cute, you know, Din Grogu, Din Jaren, it doesn't take long to explain why you did it that way. Jaren was too old when he was rescued to not know his clan name. He knew what his clan name was. I mean, he knew his family name. That's it had had to be. We see him get rescued. We see we saw it happen, even if it was a vision. I mean, he recalled it traumatically. But so is Jaren his clan name? I mean, now his clan is the Mudhorn, right? But he didn't leave Din Djarin behind when he became Clan Mudhorn and when he joined the Children of the Watch. Why give Grogu this first name? If Din's not a name and instead a title, say so. But then it's not consistent. If it was his first name and that's a custom, certainly doesn't fit with Ragnar and Paz, but it doesn't fit if he's just an apprentice either. So if it's something discussed off screen, say something. The way it was handled was bad. Now, it doesn't mean they couldn't have done this, but certainly it could have been done better. Let's just finish this so we can be on our way. We don't see the Mythosaur rise from the waters, but we do see Grogu possibly reach out with a force to it. It remains below as the scene ends, and we head to the lighting of the Great Forge. This is absolutely a Mythosaur, though, because the shot is transitioning from the shot of the head of the beast underwater to this banner... Of the Mythosaur skull. That's, I mean, that's not a camera trick or an accident. That's on purpose. Bo-Katan is handed the torch for the lighting by the armor. So clearly, the armor is still retaining some of that cachet, some of that importance, if she was part of this ceremony at all. She wasn't even part, or was she exiled for, you know, or, or you know, they escaped she wasn't there. It's just weird to have her be part of this unless she is really super important going forward. And Axe Woves. He was going to have been killed off in season two, but producers of the show decided, hey, let's let him live. And they gave him this new arc. And here at the Forge, he gets to lead a chant. There's not much left, but we're not done with the epilogue. Din Djarin heads to Adelphi base. He looks up Captain Carson Teva. I don't know how civilians are allowed to approach, land, and walk in unannounced at a military outpost. Far from the core or not. We have to assume all that took place off camera. We don't ever find out what happened to Kane or Pershing or even Zeb, but we do see... 
Trapper Wolf at the bar, and for some reason, he mentions Plo Koon. Clearly his voice, clearly Plo Koon, just kind of an Easter egg in there. The real cool stuff is that we get to see Captain Teva, and this is some chit-chat, and even a thanks or two is thrown around. I mean, Din Djarin wants contracts so he can take his apprentice to train. What does that have to do with me? Teva isn't sure that's allowed. Well, I mean, he's pretty sure that's not allowed, but both these guys know that's a good deal for the New Republic. Even though, when you think about it, that's the kind of shady deal that leads to mistrust and maybe even contributes, however small, to a rise of security forces like the First Order. You can call it bounty hunting, but it's basically anointing a vigilante. The problem, of course, isn't that this is going on. It's the problem that the New Republic is shutting down security and outposts like Adelphi are no match for all of the problems. When you view it that way, it's no surprise the New Republic fails. It sure does make for fun watching, though, doesn't it? It sounds like there are Bounty of the Week episodes coming in the next season, even if those bounties do happen to be tied together. I think that kind of storytelling appeals to a lot of fans. You know, have your through line, sure. But let's start having that chapter for each of the warlords. Then we get to see a little backstory. You know, why should we care that these guys are going to get taken down? And then we see Mando strategizing a way in. And then we see them strategizing to move the Shadow Council goals forward in the galaxy. So each week, we see another warlord get taken down. But unbeknownst to our heroes, that warlord advances the plot of the Council one small step more. And maybe this iteration is even by design of Thrawn himself. You know, this is against regulation. It'll never get approved. Which is why you won't tell them. Let me think about it. You already did. It's a good deal and you know it. Is that so? All I require is a small advance. What I want in return is that. Scrap assassin droid head? I need it for parts. So the deal with Teva isn't exactly a firm one, but I think we can assume that it's going to happen. And then the IG series assassin droid head trophy is all that's requested at this point. I mean, having seen the season, we all know what's coming next, right? I want to give you this deed to a cabin just outside of town where you can lay low with your new family if you choose so. Between adventures. Thank you. Okay, well, not this part about the deed, but Wolf and Cub, Father and Son, Mandu and Grogu, they now actually have an actual physical home. You know, not just space on the Razorcraft, a bed in someone else's place. You may call this a Star Wars tiny house, but it's a cabin on the Mesa. If the Mandalorians are gone from Navarro, they're not in position to help with crime on Navarro. Who's going to get the job of Marshall? And I have a gift for you as well. Greetings, citizens. I am IG-11, your new Marshal your new Marshal of Navarre. I am here to serve and protect the citizenry. There we go. That's what we all probably saw coming. The Zelens rebuild IG-11 from the broken shell of IG-12, 
who was the kit-bashed parts of the blown-to-bits IG-11. Never mind, they somehow have reprogrammed him to be like his old but newer and more peaceful self instead of the new old version where he was an assassin out to kill Grogu, but now he's got an entirely new personality as Marshal of Navarro. I mean, it's best not to think too hard about this one, though, because I don't I don't know that we're ever going to see him again. And who else was it going to be? I mean, Cara Dune is off with Special Forces, right? I am at your disposal, and so at your pleasure. And the last scene is just the two dens at the ranch on the Mesa. Very Western-looking shot, if you ask me. Grogu's playing with frogs again, not eating them. <laughs> He's levitating them. And our final shot is an iris closed shot. First down to Grogu, then the frog, and then closed altogether. There's no mid-credits, no end credit scene. It's just over. I liked the episode. I liked the season. I didn't love either. Nothing wrong with it. But there were enough issues with like the writing for me to be left wanting not more just something different i don't i can't tell you what it is in some cases i think i told you during podcasts how it could have been done better including this one but in other cases i just don't have a clear answer on how things could have been improved i don't have that job i'm not paid for that sometimes it's fun so if it's not obvious in my mind if it's not fun i'm not going to spend the energy and time to come up with alternatives. What do you think? Yeah, what do you think? I mean, you know, it, watching Star Wars has got to be fun, and I think a lot of times people think that means that you have to like everything you see. Well, I don't like everything I see. Sometimes there's some really big problems, and a lot of times I can just move on because it's so fun to watch. Is it time to wait for season four, though? You know, forget the Mandalorian, bring on Ahsoka. I mean, there's a lot of shows coming out in between now and season four of the Mandalorian. I mean, it has been written, don't get me wrong, but there really hasn't been a total confirmation yet. You know, I don't know when it's going to start producing or, or when they're going to start shooting it. I mean, I know that this season's over and there are other shows to come and that means there are other podcasts to come, but... I'm not going to be waiting with bated breath for The Mandalorian to return. I've got other things to do. The Bad Batch Season 2 second half recap, I still haven't gotten to. We just did April new, April's news update, but I got a May the 4th podcast planned. Star Wars Visions begins that day. Ahsoka, Skeleton Crew, Acolyte. Tell me what you think about the show, about our podcast. What what would you like to hear about? What you're excited to see about in the future of Star Wars? To interact with us, check out our Linktree site at linktr.ee forward slash thisisthewaypod. Twitter and Instagram handles are both at thisisthewaypod. And on Facebook, it's just like Linktree forward slash thisisthewaypod. Search for us now on YouTube as well. And please subscribe there. Our email is still... This is the way podcast at gmail.com for any comments you want to email in. Thank you for joining me for This is the Way Podcast's reaction and discussion of the season finale of The Mandalorian Season 3. Episode 8 
Chapter 24, The Return. I'm your host, Steve Lascalzo, and this is The Way. May the Force be with you, always. Always.